X's for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. everybody i'm nico at nico action on instagram and twitter hey everyone i'm evelyn at comic underscore canary on instagram and twitter and i'm jonah at peak jonah on instagram and twitter and we hope you survive this experience you know and what this experience is is a lot of information so tori amos once said okay guys guys i know that your noodles they can hold a lot of information but don't you think after six months you'd remember how many sugars a girl wants in her tea yo and I can't help but feel that exact way because, um, so, okay, you guys know what a big Captain Britain guy I am. You guys know that. This is not news to me. Oh, you. yes. But what I maybe wasn't expecting, guys, the first two paragraphs of each of these are the only things that took place before 2005. Everything else. Wow. Everything after the first two paragraphs is after 2005. I mean, how could they forget such important things like uh, a Braddock family computer going evil and having their maid unplug it? I mean, that storyline, how do you miss that? Or uh, um, Brian's professor, the hawk guy, who had the giant mechanical hawk and that was it? Well, and I feel like, you know, Evelyn, as somebody who is long been, com- like, long been consciously complaining that there isn't enough respect for women in comics, having so much of Betsy and Moira and Megan's pasts boiled down to like two paragraphs and then all the recent stuff like I have to imagine most of the Betsy you love was missing yeah I was a little disappointed that a lot of it was missing but then again it was like six whole pages of recent stuff so I was trying to be mindful that they're just it's the handbook so they're trying to like just make it so we know what happened in the recent years that is leading up to X of Swords but I can't help but think if this is someone's first experience reading into these characters, there's so much more missing, especially Gloriana. That one was like, um, this could have been a little longer. Yeah, well, I guess there's no better place to start than with what we're starting with. When looking at this Ohatmu, for those of you who aren't familiar, the term Ohatmu stands for Official Handbook of the Marvel Universe, and it goes back to the 1980s, and Ohatmus were the shit, and they've even done Omnibuy of Ohatmus. So there are, in fact, Ohatmu Omnibuy that you can go out and Omnibuy. Bless but you. Thank you. <coughs> Yo and Gruffit. Yo and Gruffit. So I feel like when I was looking at it, there was just a little bit too much to look at for any one group to take in and it's some totality. Little Betsy joke for you. So what I did was I split it up by the ways it made sense. I decided, okay, let's kind of put those guys over there and these guys over here. And I said, but then what's the Excalibur team? The Excalibur pages from this would make sense to be the pages filled by the people who most dominate that title. Brian and Megan representing classic Excalibur. Moira, who spent a significant point of the last years of her life in Excalibur. She was a regular in the book for about 70 of the final issues. And ultimately, how could we possibly discuss 
discuss Excalibur without talking about Excalibur's most recent leader, Betsy Braddock. Now, this was quite an experience for me. Just to kick things off with Brian, that first paragraph is basically like the first 20 years of Brian ever. And then, I mean, there is just a hard fucking pivot to Secret Invasion. The guy was introduced in 1975, and the second paragraph picks up in 2009. Yeah. I think part of what that sought to do was eliminate the need for some of the complex Excalibur from the past. Evelyn, how much experience do you have with classic Excal in terms of either the Claremont era or the Davis era or the Warren Ellis era? Are any of those like big standouts to you or were you somebody who also felt disadvantaged by the lack of availability on Marvel Unlimited? So I was very lucky. My dad collected Excalibur. So I was able to read like the first 20 issues probably a million times when I was little. But I never read past the first 20 issues really. So I was able to read like those earlier Excalibur ones but not the later run. So for you, you're thinking very cross-time caper, very when Moira is actually a part of the team and they go all train trans-dimensional. Yes, yeah. So for you, like a lot of what the Captain Britain they kind of glanced over, eh, all right, so like you had some context for it, but Jonah, you had to be like, what? Like, because I've told you so many stories about classic Captain Britain. You listened to the classic episodes with me and Kevo, and they're like, by the way, everything they've covered and then some, one paragraph. You already made a couple of jokes about it, but how did it feel feeling like, so much of who Cap Britain was no longer matter. It was really worrisome, especially because they do mention Opaluna Saturnine, who's a huge character in Excalibur, and you don't even bring up their first meeting trying to take uh, take back control of a reality from Mad Jim Jaspers. There's a lot missing that did influence the stories going forward that I wish they did touch on. It just feels like so much of what made Captain Britain more well-known, because I don't think he was very popular before Excalibur run, it feels feels like they kind of just blew it off and they're trying to pretend like it never happened but there's a lot of important meat there that could have gotten its own paragraph even if the stories weren't good and I can make jokes about them all as many as I can such as was it tornado typhoon twister whatever that guy was yeah the hurricane hurricane yeah not category five at least maybe like category half because yeah his gale force winds were more like gale forcing me to read it and it was just why was gale forcing me to read anything what is wrong with her. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage. Gale Force. Now, okay, so one of the reasons I sometimes think that they release information in these Ohatmus like this is specifically to manipulate what's a retcon or not. Now, Evelyn, I know that you're not only a comic queen with insane nerd cred, but you're a comic queen with insane nerd qued? Qued. Ha! Comic queen with insane <laughs> nerd cred who happens to work at an LCS. Now, does your LCS focus on old books as well as new books? So that, like, would somebody who picked this up be able to be like oh what about the stuff that's missing where can I get that or does your bookstore kind of focus on the material that made it into this so we typically we're mostly focusing on the current stuff for the most part because something that I've noticed is so many people because of especially the Marvel Cinematic Universe so many people are starting to get into comics and a lot of people feel very overwhelmed coming into a comic book store the first time literally yesterday I was talking to several different people who were very overwhelmed coming into a comic book shop for the first time and asking questions and I was showing them some of the modern stuff and when they're asking about the back issues and like some of the older stuff, what we like to do is the graphic novels and the trade paperbacks. That to me is the best way to read old stuff because they're just collected story arcs and editions that's a little bit cheaper and easier to find than trying to find the original back issues. 
but at our store we do have a ton of back issues i think we have like 250,000 back issues with another 400,000 on the way it's insane. Wow. So for you guys, even though there's probably more accessibility in the recent stuff, you guys do keep mindful of that there is a market for the considerably older material. Yes. Yeah. For example, one of the people I was talking to yesterday um, was very interested in Wonder Woman and wanted to read some of the con the current Wonder Woman, but was also asking about old Wonder Woman. I'm like, here, we actually have her completed Golden Age run. And she was really interested in that as well. So... It's nice having both those options for anyone who wants them. And it's with that in mind that I think part of my reaction to these Captain Britain pages is maybe a little bit more severe. Now, by that, I mean Captain Britain Classic. So discussing Captain Britain Classic's classic Captain Britain adventures, we have that first paragraph that kind of covers literally 1975 to 2005, which is just a lot to cover in one fell swoop. Suddenly, we find ourselves in the pages of Captain Britain and MI-13 with that second paragraph in the second column of Cap's handbook pages. Now, I'm a huge fan of that run. And I know uh, contributor Josh, Josh Wheel, Sleep at the Wheel, is also a huge fan of that run. And so I was really glad to see it get a lot of uh, credit. I was happy to see it mentioned because I sometimes think that the Paul Cornell run kind of gets erased for no good reason. But I am also kind of, I guess, a little bit head scratchy that all of a sudden at the bottom of that page, we find ourselves discussing Secret War. And so from Secret Invasion to Secret War, Jonah, that's two events that you and I haven't really covered in any significant way. Secret Invasion was... 2007 to 2009-ish in that family, right? And Secret War was like 2015, and it's what got the X-Men in a place where I was ready to jump back in. When you were reading these pages, did it actually affect you that you had no context for the Skrull invasion or the incursions as they related to the universe collapsing on itself? No, and not because I feel like they... It's weird because I was appreciative of them not giving enough context to understand the full gravity of everything that was going on. They really only talked about the specific parts that involve that character so i feel like i wasn't spoiled for what those events meant for the entire marvel comic universe or what that meant for readers for specific titles but i still got an idea of the gravity of the situation for what it meant for cap really secret invasion was always kind of a loose flimsy reason to pull captain britain and mi-13 in it just didn't make a lot of sense it was a great arc but i don't know that it really impacted it in a significant way and then secret war i felt very much like Cap's involvement during Secret War was kind of writers love him, but fans don't know what to do with him. Evelyn, was Secret Wars going on while you worked at the comic shop? No, Secret Wars, I wasn't at a comic shop yet, but I still obviously like read it and everything. Me and my friends really enjoyed it, but it did seem a little that some of the characters thrown in there were just thrown in there by the writers because the writers loved them. And at that time, there were a few, including Captain Britain, I didn't have much context for outside of Excalibur. So seeing him in there was neat, but I'm just like, I have no idea what he's been up to since. Well, one of the things that I guess I found myself most surprised by was what he was up to since. I kind of have this weird gap of knowledge on X-Men and Marvel Comics just by virtue of the fact that I jumped out shortly after the Bendis years and I didn't jump back in till just before Hoxpox. So I, I don't want to sound mean, but like Brian pulling a Thor slash Odin, they make a lot. They kind of make a big deal about Brian only having one eye. Okay. And I'm not trying to be weird yeah. or mean. 
But unless that's going to come up, we spent several pages on Brian only having one eye and very little time on Brian as a leader. Brian lost in the time stream for several years. Brian resurrected. Brian resurrected again. Brian sent back through time to fight with the Black Knight against the Siege of Camelot. There are so many things that Brian was responsible for that kind of got boiled down and boiled away. I kind of am walking away from this going, why the fuck did we learn so much about his goddamn eye? Like, that has to come back up in some way. And if it does, something that I don't think got enough attention is Betsy has had eye replacements as well. So that was significant. But okay, to jump back one second, <laughs> I felt like one of the things they had to do to make Brian Page's very full was to talk about other people extensively. There's a lot of discussion of Betsy. There's a lot of discussion of Megan. It's kind of like because Brian is such a minor character in so many ways, he has trouble having his story told without his sidekicks who are actually much more important than him, right? Now, as a woman in comics, Evelyn, was it refreshing to see the man's story frequently told by virtue of what happened to the women around him instead of the other way around? I mean, a little bit. I'm a hardcore, like, Megan fan. I love Gloriana so much. So, like, kind of seeing her thrown in was really nice. And I also love Betsy a lot. Seeing that they were really throwing Megan and Betsy in the story, throwing around that was kind of refreshing, where we have this man that relies so much on the women in his life and is kind of defined by the women in his life, which is something that you usually see with women in comics being defined by the men in their lives. So it's definitely a little bit of a refresher for me, at least. I agree. And now, Jonah, I have pushed on you Opal Luna Saturnine since the beginning. So to see her here and get this kind of spotlight and this kind of focus in Brian's pages, I feel like that maybe justified some of what I'd been pushing for for so long with her. It, like, gave her some attention. How did you feel seeing Brian, a character that we frequently discuss in terms of the women of his life, be defined by the women in his life, like Megan, Betty, and Opal Luna Saturnine? It's really interesting because the way you put it, Nico, he really is just a product of the women that he loves the most or he works with the most because I don't know if he has a love relationship with Opaluna Saturnine maybe like a work that's his work wife you know the, he goes into other world and that's the woman he has to take care of and then he goes home to Megan and everything's okay it's really interesting to see a character a male character have so many central female figures in his life I don't know if that's common I don't know exactly how to feel about it because I haven't read every story and I don't know all of these interactions but reading this biography of Brian and and seeing how important and influential these women are, it's really refreshing in a way to see a male say, I have really great women in my life and I'm going to do everything I can to protect them. And I kind of feel like one of the women in Brian's life that doesn't get enough attention is Maggie. I'm thrilled that Maggie exists, but there's some amount of kind of disconnection in what they're telling us. Maggie is... Okay, so for those of you who don't read Miracle Man by Alan Moore and many numerous other people, the idea of a baby that has an adult vocabulary is very connected to Miracle Man and it's been revealed that one of the Miracle Men in another reality is a Captain Britain so I'm fascinated to see if some of what's going on with Brian here is meant to intersect in some ways with the upcoming Neil Gaiman era on Miracle Man that Marvel is still like threatening to publish at some point but I get down to that last two paragraphs sort of like we know that Maggie exists I'm thrilled but I get to that last two paragraphs 
paragraphs, and it does seem to just be a restate of the first two trades of Excalibur. I'm glad that this Ohatmu focuses on the recent, but I felt like Captain Britain was a passenger in Betsy's Excalibur, and good, because it's Betsy's Excalibur. Guys, how do you feel about the fact that Brian's history has been recontextualized to be more about the people in it than his first-person experience of living it? I mean, for me at least, like I said, I, I feel like I can't get mad about it because it is all about leading up to X of Swords or Ten of Swords or whatever. And there are some people who just haven't been reading all the X titles. That's something I've encountered at the shop where um, there's people that they kind of pick and choose which X titles to read because there's just so many options um, and that's a lot of money. So... Uh, they just pick and choose and so with X of Swords they're like okay what do I need to know and it's like well this is it so in one way I'm not that mad about it but I do agree as someone who's been reading Excalibur he was a passenger like you said so kind of it, it almost made him seem like he was more involved than he was in some ways Absolutely. It made it seem like there was two paragraphs to say about him, when what there was was two paragraphs to say that could include him. Jonah, did you think your first real foray into modern Brian brought you much Brian at all for the fact of your foray? No, because in the current Hawkbox Zox of it all, we really haven't seen Brian outside of those initial uh, Excalibur issues. He kind of, you know, went to Otherworld to see what was going on, got taken control of by Morgan Le Fay, and then he kind and it just disappeared after that and for him to be named you know one of the swordsmen or to be important to the prophecy foretold by Opalunus Adonai and given to Polaris I really would have expected to see him a little bit more I know a lot of planning in these events are you know they're thought of and conceived months in advance so it would have been nice if knowing that Brian was supposed to be important to the story he would have gotten uh, one or two more issues more of being seen and doing something because right now I feel like he's kind of just sulking that he was forced made to make the wrong choice but like it wasn't his fault but he's still having you know white man pain about it so I don't and I think it's kind of hard to talk about the Captain Britain pages without talking extensively about Gloriana I too am a humongous Megan fan whether she's Megan or Gloriana or she's the wolf child or the witch breed whatever you need to call her to get through the day she's Megan and she's glorious and she's amazing and for all that I'm saying that the Captain Britain pages can't be read without the Megan pages the Megan pages seem to not know Captain Britain is a person and I <laughs> loved that so much of captain britain's pages are about the women in his life and how they defined what he was going through but with the exception of that first paragraph which kind of covers um geez i guess 1986 to 2005 unfortunately that next bit covers her time on mi-13 including their brief appearances with x-men legacy and x-force under the pen of Cy spurrier and then before you know it we're at pretty modern times now to hear somebody say they're a big fan of Megan warms the cockles of my weird gay little heart because I feel like not enough people even know who she is and I don't know that I'm walking away from these pages with an understanding of Megan and not to be like that weird dude but I would love to talk for a minute about what Megan means and who she is and I think there'd be no better person to get that from than a young woman who was influenced by this young woman. Evelyn, when you think of Megan, what comes to mind? So... My relationship with Megan has been very complicated because I'll admit at first I was not a fan of the character purely because I was a young impressionable like like preteen reading it for the first time and I see this woman who 
has to change to get Captain Britain to even notice her and to like her. And I always was like, oh, that's that's not great. That's not great representation. But then as I read more, I'm like, oh, she's actually this really complex character. They're writing her better. Uh, she comes into her own, especially like in more recent times when she like literally has like a bunch of demons just worshiping her and loving her. And I started loving her too because I see her coming into her own realizing her own self-worth and self-confidence and I really see myself in her a lot with that regard and seeing her now as this very strong female role model who even in terms of her daughter where she was a little like with her daughter being a genius uh being a little like self-conscious being is my baby not gonna like need me I still like understand those like self-confidence issues and I felt that was a really great representation of like what women actually go through. So seeing her go from this like token beautiful woman that like for the man to the strong individual that she is and seeing it in these pages where she has her own story. They barely mention Captain Britain at all and talk about like the great stuff she's gone through. I, I really dug it. I did. I feel like your understanding of Megan reflects my own as a young queer man. I grew up looking to these larger-than-life Claremazanian women for strength and guidance. And by the time she was in America, Claremont maybe took away a little bit of the special light that Alan Moore, Alan Davis, and Jamie Delano worked so hard to give her. But she did eventually come back into her own. She spent too many years maybe being a sex object. And for that, I'm really glad that doesn't come up. Number one, she is in a green version of Deanna Troy costume from Next Generation so that's not exactly a warrior's outfit. She very much does look like she's your neighborhood therapist in a leotard and I'm not sure how I felt about that as a kid but as an adult understanding that you should never mistake quietude for weakness and you should never mistake a desire to understand others for simplicity really helped me grow and Jonah you're somebody who doesn't talk a lot right away. You sort of read the room and figure out who you need to be and in many ways, that is Megan. When you read these pages, and you've read the 10 pages of Megan that you've gotten in Excalibur, was it hard to sort of take that character who's appeared a little bit here and there in the pages of Teeny's Excalibur and lay it onto this deep, complex character? When it comes to Megan, this biography that they gave her for the handbook doesn't really match up with how she's being portrayed right now, even though she's not really even being portrayed. I feel like she's a character that's kind of being forgotten and left to the sideline, which I don't know if I appreciate because Megan as herself is probably one of the most powerful superheroes that we see. Even just looking at the data that they give her, her energy protection and a lot of her magic and her strength is leagues ahead of so many other superheroes. So I don't understand why this extreme badass woman who, you know, fought her way through hell um, dealt with such like really complex issues of herself and her identity of understanding that a lot of her appearance is, uh, is manipulated by how people perceive her i'm just upset that they're not utilizing her more like it's really jarring and almost like a shock to the system to see this character who had this greatness trying to sideline to be a mom i don't know if i really appreciate that at all when nico was telling talking to me about excalibur eons ago when we first started dating megan was a character i was super excited to get to because i really appreciated her design and something that nico told me about her and something that's mentioned in her biography is how when she 
went for her love for Brian, um, her form, she takes on the form that he, that she thought he would love the most and the one that she's most comfortable in, but he didn't care about that. He just thinks she's the most beautiful woman in the entire other world and regular world, that that's just who she is. And it's a beautiful romance that I'm upset that we don't get to see more of. I can't wait to talk about the power levels on this fucking book, which are absurd in the best possible way. And when I think about Megan and I think about the adventure she's on right now, I kind of love that she's not dictated by motherhood. I feel like there's a lot of momming her, but she's not dictated by her motherhood. Now, maybe it's just that, you know, we're guacs. I guess we're technically, um, I guess we're, we're tinks, you know, three incomes, no kid. But I don't always love kids in my superhero stories. I don't always have room for it. And I don't really plan on at this point in my life being a dad. So I don't know that I feel the need to project kids into a situation. But for those who do think they might want kids someday, there's something about how Megan is handling everything going on that I really could translate to almost like trying to have kids in a pandemic. Like there is something honest about her emotional response and the complexities by which she has to play this game to survive. And part of the hardest thing with a character like Megan, when she is so powerful and she is so godly, is finding ways to keep her reasonable while continuing the story. And I wonder, not that I think Teeny is lazy, not that I think Teeny, because she's really proven herself over and over, but I wonder if for the sake of establishing what we're supposed to get from X of Swords, removing Megan's piece from the board to start allowed the other characters like Richter to come into more of their own because frankly Megan could have played Richter's role in a heartbeat but I think it was more important to see Richter come into a new place and then have room to explore Megan on the back half. Now I don't know about you guys but this couple of pages really did make me think that Megan and Captain Britain uh, classic you know Brian are in for a pretty significant upgrade in the next couple of months I would assume. Are you guys walking away feeling like Brian and Megan are primed to take Excalibur back or do you guys feel like this was perhaps an epitaph in advance of an end point i was just stoked that megan was even included because honestly i didn't even think she was going to be on the radar for ten of swords so that itself makes me think oh she's going to be playing either a bigger role in the ten of swords or in upcoming x titles because we know that they're already starting to plan their next big event after x of swords um, even though it's been kept pretty hush-hush um, about what that actually is going to entail. But same with uh, Captain Britain, the fact that he's so included in an X-Men storyline, in a mutant storyline, even though he's, like, completely integrated into the mutant world, even if he's not one himself, like, his twin sister is, his wife is, his daughter is, uh, all his friends and family are. So it really makes me think that even if they don't play a big role in this, it's to give them some context to kind of hype them up for something in the future. I think they kind of have to, especially with the prophecy foretold about Betsy and Brian that was confirmed to be Betsy and Brian. I really think that there has to be more Captain Britain. If he's going to be an important figure to this, Brian and Megan kind of have to show up more because how can how can you say that they're supposed to be part of this event and named in this prophecy and, you know, I would say almost vital to this story that then they just don't show up or that stuff that's off panel. Like, I, I don't think that's fair to those characters. Okay, well, let's 
let's talk about fair and not fair to those characters. I find myself on the Elizabeth Braddock pages, and I say to myself, seeking a champion, Omniversal Guardian Merlin sent his agent James Braddock, blah blah blah, make a baby, Betsy became Captain Britain in their absence, she joins the X-Men, she becomes Psylocke fused with Quanin, she starts dating Angel, she gets different powers, she dies, she's resurrected, she joins the Exiles, she's used by the Sisterhood, oh, now she's a person in her own body again. And I'm like, did you guys really just take 1976 and take it all the way to 2014? The number of Betsy stories that are so significant, like, as like a Betsy fan, I'm like, uh, Outback Betsy is one of the best Betsies. Outback Betsy is one of the best Betsies. And then like, forget the fact that I love so much, like, I'm British and, because I'm not going to do the accent for everyone's sake. I'm British, pip pip, cheerio, and I'm in strike and I'm a model. Like, that that shit is missing. Like, my Betsy is an accomplished woman. My Betsy is like British Oprah, okay? And I, she needs a channel and a magazine and a talk show. And instead, she gets a paragraph. Like, Jonah, I, I know it's partially that my years of understanding on Betsy are predominantly before what I will say is the color era. I have no problem with the color era. Specifically, I jumped out at the Bendis years. The all-new X-Men was not my thing. But to, you know, recontextualize, I have pretty much all of the knowledge on Betsy up until 2014, and then I'm a little spotty. And this literally took all of the knowledge up to 2014 and made it a spot. Like a single spot. No, I am totally in agreement. Like, it was it's the exact opposite about what we talked about, um, Brian, where like where he was contextualized by the women in his life. She ended up being contextualized by the men in her life. Like, we see consistently, like, talking about, like, oh, all this stuff around Wolverine and Angel and uh, Famex. It's like, okay, but there's so much more to her. She's, like, an incredible human being doing so much. And it's like, oh, her former lover. And it just, ugh. It was an eye roll. I, I, I want to make a note that there's a difference in the doing this with these genders. Showing Brian be a monument to the women in his life is more empowering because that's not shown in media of showing positive men having positive female roles and the influence that that can have. But on the contrary, it's often in media, especially this very late patriarchal idea that women have to be defined by the men in their lives. And it's evident through the Betsy's paragraph that she's constantly being mentioned with the men that she had relationships with that it's like, well, she's not cheesecake. She's not being eaten by and shared by three different men. She has her own stories. Why does she have to constantly be defined by the men in her story? Six pages and I got nothing? Like, what? what, what is going on here that you couldn't pull together the Betsy stories that didn't involve men or, on the contrary, why did Betsy's stories in previous years have to revolve around men? I think it's hard to miss it. I completely agree. When I take a look, that first paragraph, sure, the first paragraph does a nice job kind of giving an overview. We do see that, you know, her father and brothers are mentioned. Okay, that's fair. She did have a nemesis in Slaymaster. There's nothing really sexual there. Mojo kind of sexualizes everything in that creepy spineless way that he does. So we're just gonna kind of put Mojo in the well it happened category. I, I don't know what else to say. But then we have Sarayabat. We have Angel. We have the, like exactly you said, Wolverine getting mentioned. We have so many things about men defining her. And then we 
see that she began her love affair with Phantom X and we see that I, I don't even know like it kind of bothers me even that they say that Cyclops had authorized to employ lethal force for that X-Force and I'm like alright and I get that I do and I'm not saying it's not true but it sort of I don't know I find myself feeling like you didn't need to constantly mention all of these relationship things for Betsy to have a story for her because let's jump back to Captain Britain I didn't see Courtney Ross come up and Brian dated Courtney Ross until she was murdered and replaced by an alternate universe evil Saturnine so why wasn't that mentioned like you can't just decide that somebody is limited by their past relationships and someone else isn't if they're even going to share the same title I mean she is the reigning Captain Britain like may her purpleness reign in eternity so like I don't know why it's supposed to be okay that Brian is dictated by because I, I, I don't even know like I'm even we even said that Brian there's even like there's a weird way that it's treated Brian's his own guy but his story was told in terms of the women around him but Betsy is literally contextualized by the men like it's such a fine difference but it bugs me well even still you look at their as twins look at how their relationships are defined and what they got Brian found the love of his life that he's still married to how many years later Betsy had to go through how many boyfriends and is currently single it's like because she's had multiple partners that make her different that she can't have a stable relationship now how do you feel about the dynamics of that Evelyn that's something that like always fascinated me you know when Catwoman is dating a bunch of people she's like a slutty cat but when Batman is dating a bunch of people he's like a studly bat there really is a didactic difference in the way we present the sexuality of male and female heroes and what do you guys think about that I mean even having a kid with a different mom that's not Catwoman okay but Talia is the best thing about the bat universe so I can't get into this right yeah, now but I don't like Damien <laughs> I hate Damien but Talia is my queen speaking oh, of queens see, I love Evelyn. Damien with all my heart <gasps> oh my god I will you're allowed to your opinions <laughs> I just I just don't like him there are other Robins I like more I've literally never met a woman that likes Damien like this is I, I am I, I love Damien with all my heart I will protect my baby I love it I love it I, I can't even stop loving it uh, but tell me slutty cats studly bats how do you feel that the male Captain Britain is vital and virile and the female Captain Britain has a slew of exes I mean that's kind of what we always see in comics the men are like that's a a thing about being manly is having a bunch of women versus the women if you sleep around with a bunch of men you are less than and not worth as much and the whole thing is just it's constant it is absolutely constant and it just it's overkill. It's 2020. Why do we still need this? There's no excuse anymore. Like, just let the women be happy. The men get to have it good for so long. Let the women have something. I see it in my own personal life where I, like, I understand it a little bit because, like, my brother just married his high school sweetheart versus me. I'm single and I've had multiple relationships, so there's, like, a lot of parallels right there. It's just annoying. It just, it's overkill. It's been done. It's almost lazy writing at this point because it's like, okay, we get it, whatever. It's it's just, it's consistent. Why not do something, you know, unique and new, like, I don't know, respecting women? 
And I do feel like the age of teeny has done a lot to show that respect to women. And I mean, to your point, one year of carefully crafted, thought-provoking relationship changes by a woman to a female character does not remotely make up for 40 years of mistakes. And I do actually have like one really positive, lovely thing to say. Now, I'm willing to let anybody go at the Simon Kinberg X-Men movies as much as they want. Like, they don't have to be your X-Men. They're not my X-Men. They're fine movies, but they're not my X-Men. But what I will say, that I feel very passionately about is if you come for Olivia Munn, I will step on you. No, no one can come for Olivia Munn. She trained for months for that role. Months, okay? And have you seen that vine of her with the sword accidentally slashing through her priceless art? She's Betsy, okay? Oh, yeah, she Olivia Munn so is queen. And she made a really beautiful comment where she was like, I don't regret not showing as much skin as the comic book character because I'm a real woman and I'm not a fictionalized drawing. I hope people respect the costume I wore and I'm glad people find it lovely. But, you know, when that costume was designed, women served a very different role in comics. And I specifically want to go out of the way to credit the team in special projects production because when I go through the Betsy cover, uh, the Betsy images they included, it is her in battle. Then it is one thigh showing image. One image with some cleavage, one image with a few cutouts, and then pretty much the rest of the way, she is respectfully covered. And that is such a rarity for a woman in comics, a sometimes depicted as Asian woman in comics. I shouldn't have to say sometimes depicted as. God damn it. (sighs) And specifically, a woman who is frequently treated as an element of the male love affairs she has. I actually do think the art choices were very respectful, all things considered. I will definitely agree with that. One of my favorite things is the Hawkeye initiative where a bunch of artists uh, took a lot of like the sexualized women and drew Hawkeye and other male characters in those same like positions and costumes to like show how ridiculous it looks. And so seeing that's another thing I just always like about Betsy is like her stuff is tactical, even with like her high V thigh showing it's tactical she has boob support she's ready to rock and roll and i definitely appreciate that like right now slightly off topic the black widow cover that just came out that's like my pet peeve is that pose where both the boobs and the butt are showing at the same time that's not physically possible unless you have a broken spine I just have to say that her spine is broken doing that pose. Uh, I, I also love the Hawkeye Initiative because I think it's hysterical. I also love reading, like, just seeing images of men drawing women in those poses and being like, did you really think that's how the neck goes? Like, how the neck connects to the rest of the body? It's like, I, we, we also talk about it a lot with early Dazzler. There are way too many issues and images of her drawn in poses that don't make physical sense whatsoever that I don't understand how somebody can look at it and go, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's how anatomy works. My power is these duck lips and my ass above my head exactly so seeing like the art choices that they make having her in these realistic poses and these realistic costumes in battle just ready to go and just fuck someone up i love that they made those choices and I, I, just, I think there's a, a sentiment of you can have characters be sexy and sexual and have more exaggerated features as long as their costumes make sense. I think my small pet peeve with a lot of X-Men costumes I've seen, especially on women, are that really skin tight like suits that show their belly button. Like you're wearing something that tight that you're able to see your belly button. You cannot, I do not imagine how you can breathe in that. Yeah, it's painted on. That's the only thing I can ever think of is like they like schedule about four hours to get body paint. 
because actually, I don't know if you know this, Nico, um, but I actually have a background in martial arts. I did not know that. Yeah, so I am a black belt, a very proud black belt in Tang Sudo. And so I've always been a proponent of women being in proper costumes and proper poses because I was an athlete. I have friends that are like Olympian level athletes and we're all like, that's not how women look like when they're doing that kind of stuff. You just want a girl to be in a good gi when she's gotta. Exactly. Like, I just want a sports bra. I just want someone to have that like good support sports bra. That's all I want. And, you know, like, I think it's kind of important to remember that there's that conversation between Carrie Fisher and George Lucas, where George Lucas is like, no bra. And Carrie's like, why not? And George is like, no underwear in space. And she's like, so Harrison Ford's all jangly down there, right? And he's like, well, no, absolutely not. And she said, why not? And he said, well, because that's different. I'm sorry, because it's three smaller bits. It's different than two bigger upper bits. No, if a guy is like, I need this suspended in place, otherwise I'm too like to cut it off with my sword assume that a woman and her equally proud breasts which have always had to be on display these two lovely champagne orbs affixed to her body for everyone to see <laughs> right if that's what we're talking about assume it's as precious as your sacred berries and stick and let's you know i mean one of the things i do love about the hawkeye initiative is that daredevil they actually had to frequently unfeminized daredevil images to make it look like the hawkeye initiative because sometimes daredevil's feet are really like wrapped around his own thighs because they're just trying to show how agile he is and look how his disability doesn't hold him down and in the process they pretty much turned him into a pretzel rod one of the twisted ones with the honey wheat that i love so much and you know his bulge sometimes comes out as far as his nose and i'm like that's uh, good for him a dong devil but that's not that's not like anatomically what i need in a superhero book so i think the hawkeye project was so important for everyone because it literally made everyone go back stick you know take a huge step back and go (laughs) this is the worst game of operation ever (laughs) and it brought us to a really interesting place in comics and one of the most interesting places in comics i find myself these days and that was the weakest segue ever is i just can't stop thinking about moira and her 10 live one two three four five six seven eight nine ten every single one of them they're just more perfect than the one before which made the moira pages some of the most fascinating and yet some of the most confusing betsy got six pages for a linear story moira's story was almost entirely new or summarizing events that we were already summarized and she did it in three pages like if you knew nothing about moira mctaggart uh, <laughs> everything that ever happened to her is in like 11 lines it's basically just a summary of pox pox there really wasn't anything about what moira did in life 10 you know uh falling in love with sean cassidy um hosting basically the wayward mutant home that was the wayward mutant homes that where they didn't want to be here her abusive relationship with joe mctaggart there was a a lot missing that like i understand that moira became this very complex character almost overnight uh with the introduction of her mutancy and what that means and i appreciated the re-summary of everything that happened but at the same time there's more that moira did and more that was really important and vital to just mutancy and the x-men legacy in general that i don't understand why none of that was included like at all it was all just Hoxpox Moira. Yeah, that's something I definitely noticed was it really was it really just felt like a summary of the second issue of Hoxpox. 
most of that information was from that second issue where we got pretty much reintroduced. She almost feels like a completely different character to me. Yeah, it feels like a mask that she put on all along to be the Moira that we are. So, big famous thing, we love Machine Gun Moira. Her first appearance, she literally comes out guns a-blazing to protect the X-Men from a demon. Like, if you can't appreciate a woman who's like, I'm gonna die for these mutants, you don't deserve her. And I really agree. You know, they make her um, militant. They make her an extremist. And she needed to be those things in those lives. I'm certainly not passing judgment. But they don't exactly line up with my Moira, but I guess they do because she was always super mysterious. And, you know, we get she was a normal person who lived a normal life marrying Kenneth Cowan at age 19 and then we get that she had her powers in her second life and tried to get to Xavier in her third life she fell victim to Mystique in her fourth life she worked with Xavier and died in a sentinel attack in her fifth life she decided to be a little bit more violent what's up she established a mutant nation the far away along with Xavier in her sixth life she ultimately that's the one that we followed in Powers of Ten in her seventh life she was an assassin killing the Trasks is his. In her eighth life, she was with Magneto till he was killed and she was imprisoned and died in a failed prison escape at 38. Life nine, she was mad APOC, yo. And then life 10 is the current life. And I just can't help but feel as though, like, I don't think she should be blamed for the responsibilities of her son. Like, I'm specifically, we've gone out of our way to say Betsy shouldn't be defined by men. Megan shouldn't be defined by men. Captain Britain is a man, so he probably should be defined by himself and he's not, right? So like, we're saying saying the defining by men is in all the wrong places it is weird to me that her reality destroying serial killer sociopathic maniac son who has more experience being a reality hopper and a mass murderer than most x-men this side of captain britain betsy or brian with that in mind they're just sort of like oh her son proteus lol they're not like her serial killer son proteus lol they didn't even mention the story where he escaped from uh, her lab and almost destroyed Muir Island. We also didn't talk about her relationship with Rain, which there's so much, so much missing that I don't, again, it's the same thing we kind of just talked about with Betsy and something that Nico just said. It feels like, well, I understand a lot of these stories where Moira trying to figure out what's the best path to save mutants and mutant kind. A lot of it, again, just seems like the definition of which men she hooked up with to then try to save the world with. Because it wasn't just she allied with Charles. She married Charles. She fucked uh, Magneto. She fucked Apocalypse. Like, it, why did she have to get into a relationship with all of them? Why couldn't it just be in an alignment with them? And maybe that's a statement on the men themselves, that the men need to feel ownership of a woman to fully feel at ease to allow her. Like, if she's not their queen, they can't let her into the regency. And not to say that she's a manipulative... No, she's not being manipulative. She's trying to save reality. Like, she's literally trying to preserve a species. So in that regard, I maybe see some of the actions she takes in terms of the romantic subterfuge as acceptable forms of warfare that I would expect of a man as well. But Evelyn, I want your opinion on this more than anybody. Do you feel that the the past relationships they've inserted into Moira's self are necessarily positive or negative reflections of some of the gendered tropes we've been discussing? Yeah, for sure. So in these, it doesn't really necessarily seem like it only implies that she hooked up with them except for like with the time when she actually like or they mentioned they married but it's heavily implied and plus we know those men where they're always hooking up with someone and that's great for them but for her it makes her come off as manipulative almost where she's doing it just to get her way and the entire thing came off as being manipulative 
and like trying to like her just doing whatever she wanted which is not her she's actually like you know trying to help mutants trying to understand her own powers trying to actually help the world but it comes off as oh she's just doing whatever she wants to for her to survive is the way it came off especially the life about apocalypse and I just felt it wasn't fair to her character because she's so much more complex than that and I don't know it just it felt very disconnected almost compared to the other summaries where this one was just like oh here's xyz about her it didn't really it felt more like a history textbook rather than like an actual summary where it's like oh this is what happened when versus the other characters we get a little bit about their personality and their feelings and such and I wonder, because that's an amazing astute point, and if you hadn't said that, I never could have come to this. The other characters, we're reading someone summarizing comics they read. With Moira, we're reading summaries of comics that were never written. We never saw Moira's first through ninth lives, with the exception of parts of six, and glimpses of some of the other eight. Here, we're actually reading unrealized stories, and I wonder if that's part of what made this one feel a little bit more like an info dump. I was green rooming with Maddie and he said that he wasn't sure how he felt about some of the book because some of it felt like an info dump some of it felt like uh, a history and I feel like I can say for certain that while certainly colored the Captain Britain's both the Captain's Britain and Gloriana's pages did feel like a history it felt in many ways like Moira's was a summary and I don't expect an Ohatmu to give me uh, an incredible view into a character I've never had before but I guess I was a little disappointed that there was nothing new from the Moira pages of the Ohatmu in that regard. So I do want to bring up for one moment the power levels on these characters, some of which are startling. Now, I do agree that Captain Britain getting a five on intelligence makes sense with the fact that he's a scientist. Having a six on strength makes sense with the fact that he is a Captain Britain. Having a four on speed, I would probably put his strength and his speed together. I don't know, his durability. I guess I don't know that it's easy to make those determinations, but okay. His durability is pretty much where I would think it is. His energy projection is where I would think it is. I'm actually surprised that his fighting skills are so low. I don't know that I would have put Brian's fighting skills at a four like that. And then comparatively, Betsy's fighting skills are only at a four as well. And uh, she was a member of a British version of S.H.I.E.L.D. She was a member of The Hand, if you think about it in a matter of speaking. I feel like for the Captain's Britain, saying that their fighting levels are so low, kind of, then why are they going into this fucking tournament? Like, <laughs> if they're so bad at fighting, what the fuck? Especially because it feels like fighting and their fighting skills is, like, part of their entire storyline and identity almost with how their powers work and how they go about doing stuff. So it just, it came off very odd to me. What else is odd to me is that why is Moira and Brian ranked at the same intelligence of five? I get that Brian is smart, but Moira, they make a note to say that Moira has had multiple degrees and multiple lives of going through college at pristine universities. So why does she have the exact same intelligence as her? Yeah, how is she not a full you, 10? 
Yeah, okay. Oh my god. Like, I was like, no way. Not that I disbelieve Jonah. I'm gonna flip to that pit. What the fuck? How is it just that we're starting to say that she's only that smart because of her multiple lives? Because then I'm like, what do you gotta do to get a seven on intelligence? Who do you have to blow in the X office to get yourself ranked properly? Because I even go to Megan and I'm like, they gave her a two? They also gave Betsy a two and I feel like a two is insulting. Is two the average? Well, like, I'm looking at her education, right, at Mortar's education right now, and it's, like, a PhD in biology, a PhD in genetics, um, military training, and then a third, and then, like, two more PhDs in genetics, and she is the leading person in biology and genetics in the world. Like, how is that not a 10 if she is literally the leading person and knows everything? I'm not trying to jump around and talk about some other people's shit to talk about. But okay, Cypher gets a six. I can accept that. Boy can speak every language. Hi, boy, hi. But then here's where shit gets a little tricky for me. Magic is more intelligent than Betsy? They also gave magic a two in strength, which are we defining strength by physical strength? I think like muscle, muscle, I can punch. They, I'm just saying they draw magic very toned a lot and I feel like she can throw a wicked punch. So I don't understand how she gets a two for that, but I've never seen her be smart. I love magic with all my heart. I really they really do when has she been smart yeah <laughs> and like apocalypse gets a six on intelligence so apocalypse and cypher are both smarter than betsy and magic. and magic i i i they're about as smart as them put together and apocalypse gets a seven on strength which i guess i accept i i sure do but like i go to brew and brew has a six on intelligence which is great but brew also has a four on fighting skills i'm not sure i really understand the narrative we're trying to take shape here this is this is some weird playing it fast and loose with some numbers like was there a seven-sided die involved yeah i mean at least for like for gloriana they like they added in like for the fact that she can be even speedier and um more and have more strength based on what she does with her um external energies but like, that's the only one that, like, seems to be a realistic, almost, uh, analysis of her skills. I'm, I'm looking at these others now, and I'm like, what is happening? Who they, decided They go this? out of the way to mention that Megan learned everything because her parents were scared of her appearance, that she just learned everything from TV. So I can buy that Megan might not have the most book smarts because she wasn't taught any of that. But like, you're telling me the rich white student of Betsy Braddock didn't get into a pristine education? That she's at a two? You're telling me that she's gone to hell and she's fought and talked with demons? You're telling me that she has stood tete-a-tete with Dr. Doom and has come against some of the greatest thinkers in all of existence and as an elemental metamorph with telepathic and empathic abilities she's never absorbed any sort of information that would put her above a two like we're just all pretty angry about this too yeah <laughs> that's so ridiculous okay. hey guys welcome back to a very special episode of this is x on x is for podcast as always i'm maddie and you can find me on instagram at at the base latovitus man today i am joined by none other than founding member of x is for podcast kyle kyle say hi Hello, and you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Fantastic. And today with us, we have the splendiferous Nathan. Hey, how's it going? Why don't you tell us all where we can find you online? Uh, you can find me online at Twitter and Instagram at DazzlerAOA. That's Dazzler A-O-A. 
fantastic. And now we have this handsome assemblage of fine young men here today to discuss. Although I do wish we had the voice of a woman, uh, just to just for balance and clarity. But I am joined with these fine young gentlemen today to discuss the Ten of Swords Handbook, and boy. Was it not at all what I was expecting? Uh, Ten of Swords, of course, completely underway. I believe we're about, at the time of this recording, seven of 22 chapters in. And it's only getting bigger and better, but today we're going to detract from the main thesis of it all. Today we're going to detract from the from the meat of the story and talk about a little bit more of what seems to be a 60-page info dump. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of like an encyclopedia of some of the players of Ten of Swords. Not all of them. And certainly, you know, I'm sure you would agree, Kyle, certainly not the players that we expected to see covered. Yeah, that's that's a very good way of, of putting it. Um, there were definitely some characters that I was like, why are you being highlighted in this? Because, yeah. but I mean, <laughs> there, there's for for everybody's edification. There's no coverage on the summoner. There is no coverage on the horsemen. There is no cover on Amenthi. There's no coverage on other worlds specifically. This is specifically Krakoa exclusive, character based, encyclopedic back matter, I suppose. And I I thought it was handled exceptionally well for what it is, but. What were, Nathan specifically, what were you expecting to see from this Ten of Swords handbook? I, I was really expecting one of the more, you know, just uh, straightforward, like, hey, this is stuff you already know about these players. But uh, it's really making me question, like, we see, like, Megan, like, we haven't really seen her so far. Is she going to, is Gloriana going to have a big role in it? Or is it just because of her past in Otherworld? And, like, I didn't expect this new little tidbits hidden within the stuff we already knew oh for sure i i think specifically the the krakoa pages are the most the most illuminating for that for that sentiment i i think i was personally stunned in the five page breakdown with with images to see just how many locations on krakoa that were illustrated and highlighted in house and powers that we've already seen in the dawn of x era and there's also quite a few that we still haven't seen, which is really surprising seeing how far into Dawn of X we are at this point. You'd think that we would see more of these locations, but a lot of them are still mysteries to us. Yes, it's just kind of like going to keep us, you know, baited for more. You know, it's like, yes, I'm excited for what's going to come. Like, I want to see all these places. I want to see... Uh, I, I know Nico's talked about it a lot. I want to see like a slice of life kind of on Krakoa where we see all these places, hopefully depending on what comes out of Ten of Swords. So, you know. You know, and, and speaking of slice of life, was anybody else expecting this to take the form that it did, this handbook? I, that's not a way that normal people speak, but I'm going to leave it in the recording. I think that sounds very Yoda of me. <laughs> I, I personally was expecting a little bit of prose, at least. I was expecting some, some amount of classic comic subterfuge, maybe? I, I was not expecting this to be strictly an encyclopedia. Although the name, I suppose, does give it away, but I was expecting to see a little bit of, at least at the very beginning or the very end, and just a few pages like cold open tie-in, you know, to what's going on, to where we are in the story. And instead, we just got cold hard facts. Oh. Which, 
Yeah, which, which as somebody who's somewhat new, I mean, I've been reading since like 2013, I think. So I, I'm i still not fully aware of the history of a lot of these characters. So having this encyclopedic read of them really helped to further my knowledge. But yeah, I did expect there to be some pros to it. I did expect us to get more regarding the Ten of Swords uh, event itself, seeing as it was called the Ten of Swords Handbook. Uh, truly, truly. But but I have I have to admit that this is the first time that I picked up one of these handbooks. I don't know how frequently they've done them. I, I believe there was one for Empire that I didn't get. But I don't remember ever seeing something like this on the shelves before. You know, kind of with that, I, it reminds me, like, I guess I was kind of expecting, like, in the 90s, they did a lot of these sort of handbooks, too. And, like, Maddie, like you were saying, they always threw some kind of, like, story tie in, like, the Age of Apocalypse one. They had uh, Apocalypse go into the Madri um, facility, and that's when he was looking at, I think, the different pictures of the people. It's same with the Avengers one back, but they did an Avengers one back in the 90s, and I forget what it was about, but they gave, like, a little intro to it and a little outro to it. But this one was just pure handbook. It just strictly is is a is a guidebook for allegedly Ten of Swords, but I I struggle to see the connection honestly with with everything that was set up in creation. This seems like a big detraction from the main story, but I think that some of what was included, especially these Krakoa pages here, are simply incredible. It if nothing else, everything as listed in the handbook is so neatly recontextualized around the timeline of House and Powers. Everything is bookended. It seems like everybody segment almost is bookended by where they were before and where they are now and if they had any allegiance to moira or eric or charles during the interim time when they were establishing mutant sovereignty but you know funny enough i think the the x-men pages were probably the most i wouldn't say confusing and i would i would struggle to say convoluted but i will say that it definitely suspends my suspension of that uh of disbelief to read that professor x eric and moira mctaggart struck this plan to create krakoa and then magneto still decided to just be a dick for like 30 years <laughs> you know what i mean yeah i i do that is a lot of that was was really it, it felt a little ham-fisted yeah. i think and but it does make it a little more it does help me understand why he agreed to to for instance take on the new mutants at one point and and his, his struggle with that especially after all of his uh villainy up to then though at the same time you have him acting out again during new x-men um it's it's weird. I don't know. It's I, ah. <laughs> <laughs> no. The the frustration no. <laughs> is real. It it it, it is it yeah. is so valid and is so justified. But I think there there is some context there to Magneto trying repeatedly to create a mutant sovereign nation. First with Genosha, and then by backing Cyclops's establishment of Utopia. You know, I feel like I would probably be the same person. I don't have. Uh, I famously don't have a great deal of patience when it comes to things that i actively want you know i i am definitely something i've struggled with in my formative years into my adult years and so if you told me hey bud we're gonna have an island nation where you can just drink 
and fuck and smoke and do whatever you'd like and it's just you and your own people and also we have life-saving medications and like we've leveraged the world to not hate you you have no concerns in the world i would probably want to rush getting that ball rolling you know but i think that it it is well within the character i think to have tried so many times to establish that mutant sovereignty in a in a nation state like if i knew that that was the end all be all i would just you know like like bender from futurama fine i'll i'll create my own uh my own party and it'll have uh strippers and uh and 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 hookers uh, (laughs) actually just forget the party forget krakoa you know Mm -hmm. yeah there's one story in the light of hoxpox era now that makes a little bit more sense in x-men 253 uh the school had been destroyed 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 the school had been destroyed um and magneto's talking to moira on your island um and he's like hey i'm gonna quit the team i'm gonna join the hellfire club and moira's like why are you doing this man so like he's basically tells her hey if everybody out there is thinking i'm a villain then nobody's going to be out there after you and now with this new era that kind of just makes a lot more sense uh makes makes a ton of sense and and funny enough think speaking of moira you know i know that we just saw her recently in a single panel of creation but after after rock slide is if i'm not mistaken we do see a panel of moira in creation after rock slide yeah fails the when when the backup for cerebro right yep and all of the cerebros go uh, off yeah so when all the cerebros go offline we do get a single panel so i suppose this isn't as much of a revelation as i had originally thought because now i'm of course it's coming back to me but the krakoa pages specifically state that moira is in a protected state beneath the island yeah which mm-hmm. is in yep. one of the cradles is in her no place too so the back the cerebro backup so i was like wow i didn't catch that in the exoswords creation where that the cradles were what was going off when cerebro went offline so you know, and it's it's especially for Krakoa having such a publication history as it does, for having existed for so many years as it has, I was a little bit surprised to see that almost the bulk of the, well, the, the entire bulk of the Krakoa back matter <laughs> had to do with specifically the Hoxpox Docs era. I think with the exception of Giant Size X-Men number one, there was no other information featured that did not come out in the last 18 months. And I think to stretch right. for 10 pages of content... That is a testament, a living testament to what Jonathan Hickman and team has accomplished again in the last 18 months. Oh, definitely. Um, Especially with all the other instances where we had thought that we had seen Krakoa, but it turned out that those were just spores that he had um, released as he was being flung into space. So having all of that uh, to give us backstory on how those instances of, of Krakoa fit into the 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 world building really helped and it also what i and also what i enjoyed was getting details of like the atlantic krakoa on top of like emma's island and stuff like that so we have the the five islands that broke off of krakoa that are being used as like a danger room type of thing and we had originally thought that that emma's island was part of it as well but it's not so that that helped clarify things as well Oh yes, the Atlantic Islands. Oh my gosh! Like when with that being a danger room. Like if you guys have, if you guys have ever played the X Men arcade, kind of think of when they're at that level where the little plant creatures are coming coming up. So like it, it kind of evokes that thought in me. Um, but I I I loved how it was able to keep the continuity of the little bit about Krakoa that we knew before, where 
um, there was an atomic bomb on the island and Nick Fury uh, was involved. Um, oh, yeah. Yes. That was, yeah, that was, that was a great little piece as well. Yeah, it was just, it's, it's cool to see how they're fitting the old stuff in with the new stuff in. So it, it all makes sense from a continuity standpoint. So that, that's, mm. I love. You know, and speaking of things that we love, I think one of my favorite inclusions in the Hotspots era has been the Quiet Council. I don't think there's anything more to even be said about it. I honestly just think that having a democratic nation state is, God, something that I hope that we see in the next 18 days in our own country. But... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that, uh, I, w- w- God, wouldn't it just be so much easier if a telepath just like reached into all of our minds and was like, hey guys, like American politics don't matter. We're just, uh, we're, there's mutants now. There's mutants and you just have to learn how to deal with it. And, uh, maybe you are a mutant. So if you are, come on down. And it's, uh, clearly now the mutant price is right. And hey, maybe they can throw a, a new language into our brains as well. Oh my God. And I was just saying yes. that I wanted to learn another language, but I just don't have, <laughs> I don't have the drive i again i zero patience i have no patience i cannot be taught new things i am just waiting to age into my father oh Oh, don't worry he doesn't listen to podcasts (laughs) but so speaking speaking uh, speaking of languages i mean Speaking of languages, it was pretty though. Cool that, <laughs> it was pretty cool that what ended up happening was Xavier brought Doug Ramsey, Cypher, to Krakoa months or maybe even years before all of this started in order to build a rapport with uh, with Krakoa and, as a result, develop a new language for the, for the new nation. You know, it, it's, it really is. It is. It's stunning, and it is probably my favorite piece of world building that came out of House and Powers, I, as somebody who didn't have an extensive read history with Doug, I have grown to love Cypher so much and appreciate the understated sense of his abilities. I, I absolutely and wholeheartedly agree with Nico. Somebody who can, especially with how greatly his powers were amplified after coming back from the dead the first time, uh, such that he could decipher body language and architecture um, and, and quantum numerology or, or however they chose to phrase it. I think that Cypher could be the biggest bad in X history if he applied himself to be. Yeah, when I definitely agree, but I don't want to see that. No, <laughs> because he's I just so don't want him to die. <laughs> He's just a, he's just a sweet, especially all of his, you know, and Pepe Larraz and Arby Silva did such a great job, and and Adriano De Benedetto did such a great job of animating Doug in Hotspots to be such a boyish figure, you know, really to to exemplify the fact that the New Mutants haven't fully aged in this uh, era of the timeline that we exist in. I think uh, a note that we had all made about the current New Mutants run, especially back during Volume One, was that it feels as if the kids have been age regressed a little bit and while i don't think that that works with some characters i'm looking at you basically everybody but armor i (laughs) i think that i think that it works really well for doug i think that the the whimsy and the charm that comes from seeing him every time i see him laying in the branches of krakoa i just smile i just smile a big shit-eating grin from ear to ear i just it makes me so happy and maybe it's because i i personally crave that kind of catharsis i would love to just lay in a tree and just talk to myself you know (laughs) that's probably my my biggest dream Mm -hmm. yes i love how they made him be like 
ultimate like sugar baby twink boy <laughs> kind of like ah. sugar baby twink boy. <laughs> oh. oh, I love it! I really do. Now, if you to to broaden this into a discussion about the Quiet Council, because I don't know that I've ever actually asked this question to either one of you gentlemen. If you had to pick a favorite and a least favorite on the Quiet Council, who would it be? Jeez, that's Ooh. it's tricky because you only get one. Ugh. Yeah, you really only get one. Um, least favorite, I'm probably going to go with Shaw. Mm. Okay. Oh, oh, you know All what? Right. I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna Eating. change the rules. I'm gonna change the rules. You have to pick a least favorite. <laughs> you have to pick a least favorite that is not Sebastian Shaw. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> Everybody hates him. Even the literally, even the rest of his sector of the council hate him. Like that's true. It's just I mean, not. They have tattoos saying they're gonna kill him. So <laughs> I, I wish as somebody whose tattoo appointment for today just got postponed because regrettably. Oh uh, well, well, you know what? My artist came down with COVID, so his health is first and foremost and paramount to Absolutely. me getting yeah. a, a piece of irremovable art on my body you know what i mean um yeah. so hey will, friend of the pod will uh feel better soon pal but so i i wish though that i could ever be so bold as to get kill anybody on my body you know what i mean <laughs> it's a commitment right there it's a commitment it's it's absolutely a commitment uh i think though it's fascinating i'm, I'm completely jumping topics because we all have a favorite and least favorite on quiet council we'll certainly get to that in a second but was anybody else surprised to see kate pride's tattoos disappear with her reincarnation no, no, because it's uh, the the new body wasn't Emma mentioning she was afraid that if she dies, she'll her her nose jobs will go away. Oh my god! Yeah, so because yes, because yeah, it's so a new body. It is a new body. It's it's any any kind of body modification doesn't follow along. Oh, I want the resurrection protocol. It's just I know. <laughs> so pretty so pretty much if once she's once she's done killing Shaw, she can if. The next time she gets killed, she can get rid of those tattoos. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> God, that is, that is, like, you are, you're pretty much a dry erase board at that point. That is mm. Like, somebody kill Pyro so he can get that thing off of his face, but. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna be, that's gonna be something. Can you imagine how many hours that took? Holy hell, oh. and on your face. Ugh. Oh, God. Mm. Oh, all right, so let's oh. let's yeah that <laughs> let's all assume that we hate Sebastian Shaw, right? So let's just cut this question okay. in half. That's who is easy, your yeah. who is your favorite Quiet Council member? I'm going with Doug. Ooh. Thank you, ah. because he's really the only one who understands Krakoa's place in the whole arrangement and he while he may seem relatively meek in comparison to the other members of the quiet council he constantly stands up for krakoa's rights constantly yeah, constantly absolutely. and i i would venture to say that with the exception of charles nobody is ever really considering krakoa which is which is such a shame charles definitely goes out of his way to to state that krakoa's voice matters first and foremost but i think yep. that doug is the only person who is capable of ensuring that fact which makes me so so nervous for him going into ten of swords so uh... nervous me too that i i'm the thought of him potentially dying in other worlds and coming back as a different person is really scary oh my gosh no I, you know i i just wonder i wonder how how warlock would handle that 
I wonder if Doug's not coming back, if we were to posit the theory that Doug is the loss taken on Krakoa, I wonder if that will start to ramp up the Technar plot from uh, Powers of Ten. I wonder if Morlock goes full villain. That that would be kind of terrifying. That would. (laughs) Because he is so terrifying. Warlock is just mm-hmm. terrifying to look at, and I feel so bad because I want to just think of him as the Gumby of the Marvel Universe, but he is just, like, horrifying to look at, and I cannot imagine that. I cannot imagine Self-Friend being <laughs> being a villain, but it's right there, you know? Ooh. I feel like everybody is one bad day away from becoming the villain mm-hmm. in their story, you know? And I think mm-hmm. that losing Doug between Krakoa and Warlock, it would just be on. Well, if I if I remember correctly, there was a time when Doug was terrified of when he became true friend in the future. Oh yeah, and that oh, uh, yeah. Prime. Yeah, so I could see something like that happening again and just completely putting the entire thing at risk oh. as a result. Oh my god, what what if he comes back as true friend? <gasps> oh, no. that would be terrifying. Because, because <laughs> remember, this is the the justification for Rockslide not coming back as Santo is that other world a death in other world pulls all of the multiversal qualities of yourself and creates an amalgam in your recreation. There's something that is inherent to you in different universes that comes back in your final form. Christ, what if he comes back as true friend? Or he could come back as the Magus Doug Ramsey that was in Days of Future Tense, too. That was, I don't know if you guys read that. That was a frightening Doug Ramsey. No, I missed that. Yeah, he was a full-blown Magus mode. So, like, in that reality, he had, like, killed um, Warlock because, you know, through the the battle that they have to go through because of the technology. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Oh, jeez. I mean... Yeah, there, there's another option that could happen. He could end up becoming Douglock. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Ooh, what if he becomes the Krakoa hybrid that he was in Hoxpox? Oh, that's did right. I miss that? It was uh, Krakoa had taken over Doug's body in the Apocalypse Akaba future. Yes. Or reality. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, man, that would be something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it always seems that Doug's body gets possessed by everything else. Uh, except except the only person who's never been been inside Doug, and no, I don't care to rephrase that, <laughs> is <laughs> is Kitty Pride still. <laughs> I I like I like that's, Jonah's that's, running. <laughs> you know what? That's okay because she has a new focus. She's got a new purpose. <laughs> she is she is Pirate Kate and it you know, it's so fascinating to look at the the characterization of Doug and the characterization of Kate in the era of Hoxpox Docs and to realize that they have definitively aged Kate, you know. I know that we discussed Marauders number eleven being I believe it was Marauders number eleven being Kate's return to form and the final coming out of Kate Pride, the final aging up of Kate Pride, the eighteen lives, the eighteen resurrections that were failed. The the absolute analogy and metaphor that she is now a grown adult woman. And you have, while we won't be discussing it for several weeks, part of the content of the most recent New Mutants is Magic trying to bone up uh, Doug's skills as a warrior. <laughs> yeah, first Kate was inside of Doug, and now Magic is boning up on him. I, I clearly need to work some things out today. <laughs> this is, thank you for coming to my group therapy. Um, <laughs> but 
I think that there's something to be said for the fact that they were originally best pals, faded love interests, will they, won't they, but definitely won't they's. And now they, they to me, are of such contrasting ages that I wouldn't even consider pairing the two. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he definitely doesn't feel like he's close to the same level of maturity that Kate is at at this point. Is it no. because he's been dead for so many years? I guess, or I, you know, I would say that could definitely be it. I I don't, you know, I I as a general <laughs> rule of thumb don't try and make sense of anything anymore. Um, yeah, Xbox yeah. notwithstanding. <laughs> but um, speaking of a gentleman who could probably make sense of just about anything. Um, how do we all feel about my sweet baby king of the brood brew? Oh, oh he's so, so precious. <laughs> he, is. he is so precious. And I have to say that his entry was particularly timely for me because I had just finished reading Avengers versus X-Men this week. So reading a lot of the details regarding Brew and the uh aftermath of that event just it it fit in perfectly. Um because I got I got to read reread the events surrounding what happened with him again and it immediately brought a tear to my eye um remembering how how he had gotten shot in the head yeah that was that was a devastating loss for sure and so we 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 haven't seen brew since he became the king of the brood in the docs era so to see his inclusion in the ten of swords handbook has me especially confused i would like to believe that he would take into his position in the peak for sword i would love to see brew in the upcoming sword book i would love to see brew in the upcoming sword book i can say it one more time i would love to see brew <laughs> in the upcoming sword book but i think that i think that his inclusion in this handbook seemed much like gloriana arbitrary to say the least i wonder if there's just yeah. some foreshadowing as to uh, it's got to be he's got to be with sword i guess i mean i can't really see where else he would fit in besides through the sword angle well, he has had experience with swords before, so it does make it would make sense that he would uh, be tied to that group. And seeing as his all of the uh, brood that he is now in control of are in space, having him in space would make sense. Ooh, I wonder if, um, I wonder if if he's gonna bring the brood into the other world contest somehow. I mean. I'm just trying to figure out why he's really in the book, though. <laughs> no, honestly, I... And one thing that concerns me most about Bruce's inclusion is because he's a sweet, perfect, beautiful baby angel. I, <laughs> I'm so concerned <laughs> that he might be one of, you know, because Brew, of course, is a brood. He's not a mutant, so he's not qualified for the resurrection protocols, albeit we have seen that he can be brought back to life. I am so concerned oh. at the, the prospect of losing Brew in the upcoming battle. I am distraught because not only do we just lose sweet, perfect, beautiful, beautiful baby angel but we now lose the king of the brood which then recreates the brood threat because right now the brood threat is completely neutralized you know but i think that the x-men have enough on their plate i mean 
and let's not forget that we're going into Ten of Swords with so many unresolved threads from so many fledgling villain group, villainy groups. Uh, Horticulture, Orcus, Zeno, um, the list goes on and on. I think adding the brood back into the mix is just like, that's going to like screw up somebody's Monday really badly. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like darn sleazoids. Sorry. I I will disagree that um with with your statement that Drew isn't a mutant. He's he's specifically called out as a mutant brood for the effect for the reason uh, of being able to have compassion and empathy and his incredibly high level of intelligence <gasps> Ooh. which which if we if we i mean if we refer to the gloriana flip page really briefly that is the explanation for her daughter's uh mutant power she's just incredibly intelligent mm, okay so mm. i so i if if that little girl i can't remember her name at the moment maggie um <laughs> Maggie, thank nope. you. If if so, if if Maggie is is considered a mutant because she's very smart, why can't Drew? No, you know Especially I definitely understand. When he's part of the brood. Ooh, I, it, is that like a common thing with uh, the alien mutants, like Brew, Warlock, and I think even Ariel? Like, is it like their mutation is just to be like more like not so aggressive and like more normal, I guess, and intelligent. Yeah, I guess that is kind of a running theme. That was always my my assumption. There are a couple things in regards to this release that I was very surprised about. Um, quite often, we have said that certain events, it feels like Marvel has tried to pretend that they never happened. But in almost all of the pages that we cover those events are referenced and i was not expecting to to see that stuff like age of x uh age of x-man where which was pretty heavily um i didn't hear a lot of good things from people about it uh, and personally i didn't enjoy it uh so that that was a big surprise yeah definitely the the sheer volume of what was what was Again, I, I would hesitate to say regurgitated, but the, the sheer volume of what was included and what was referred to as direct canon for the current age that we're in was a little bit surprising. Yeah, uh, I, there was one tidbit that like really like stuck out to me and it was right at the end. It's got some implications for some characters that I really love. So it's just like kind of hidden back in the notes of the X-Men one where it says, Clones of existing mutants or mutants from alternative realities are not currently considered candidates for resurrection. So, like, does that mean if Rachel Summers Gray dies, they're not going to bring her back? Oh, oh wow, oh, that is a really good question. Oh no, and then but I mean, we we did see that with um with Hellions when they rejected the request to resurrect Madeline for being a clone. Yeah, for being a clone. So, so you know, I was like, wow. We've got Arturo. Hey guys, uh, I'm Mr. Toybox. That's M-I-S-T-E-R-T-O-Y-B-O-X uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Hey, I'm Robbie. You could find me at Age of Polaris on Twitter. And I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L on Twitter and at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L dot com. So today we've been tasked with covering the captains from the X of Swords handbook. So we're going to be going over our girl Magic, Ileana Rasputin. 
Wolverine, Gorgon, and the big blue dad himself, Apocalypse. First off, we've got magic here. Magic has an incredible history, probably the most loaded of any of this characters. And I say that knowing one of our characters is Logan. Ileana Rasputin, she's been through so much. Most importantly, you've got the Claremont miniseries, Magic, Storm and Ileana, uh, from the 80s, which ties together uh, what happened in the Uncanny run right before the Brood Saga with what was going on in early New Mutants and gives us her whole aging up, trapped in hell, having to kill her AU versions of her friend's backstory, like the serious trauma aging, what made magic the way she is, what made her the hardcore bitch, and I say that in the nicest way, that she has been biggest after that New Mutants Inferno, right, where we see her sacrifice all of that, go back, she becomes the child again. Uncanny X-Men 303, where she's lost to the legacy virus. Then jump ahead about 20 years, new X-Men, the quest for magic, where they get her and most of her soul back. Some of her soul. And that, some of her soul. And that doesn't even include her being part of the Phoenix Five and AVX, her having to kill her protege and extraordinary X-Men, or any of the umpteen times she's lost control and gone full demon, most recently like a month or two in Empire. Our girl's been through some shit. Yeah, yeah. Trauma and tragedy are such a part of magic. It, it's it, it's what makes her what makes her such a cool character uh, is how damaged she is. And she is the original, I think, shaped by trauma character. Like before, it was cool for all of the X Men to be shaped by trauma. We had a little bit of Scott. Like if we go back to it, we start seeing. Okay, Scott had a bad childhood. We knew that, but we didn't really start thinking of it as okay what all the stuff that happened to him really hit until later on i'd say probably into like the 200s when we start seeing him make lots of bad choices regarding maddie and the x-factor stuff comes up the best glimpse we get is in the 150s when you know he finally has the first like confrontation with corsair but that doesn't even fully pay off. We don't get like the full emotional, like how much this messed him up as a kid until 391 when Scott Lobdell does it. 240 issues later. Magic's our original trauma girl. And I mean, that's, is that why we love her? Like, is that why we love her so much? One, one big thing I love about her is that despite her being Colossus's little sister, she has become so much more central to current X-Men stories uh, than than he's been in a long time, and it's it's just such a cool thing to see her develop so much and and just take such a big role in in the Dawn of X. And then speaking of her and her brother, the thing that I I love about the handbook is that it fills in like you were saying, you know, there's blind spots that we have to certain characters and their history, and sometimes it's hard to impossible to read it all. So this was nice way to to cover up a lot of those gaps, and I don't think I really grasped how much how much pain and, and damage there was between her and Colossus. Uh, but it's like a Ooh. Yeah, it's and it's like a recurring thing. I mean I, I remember I remember them taking each other out in the in the the Phoenix Five story, so I remembered that. But I didn't I didn't quite get and, and the whole thing about her being uh, held captive in the in the X Brig and and outfitted with a costume that could blow up if she betrayed the team i don't i didn't read any of that stuff 
So it, it really kind of underscored to me just, you know, like you were saying, what a badass she is and not just to be cool. She's a badass because she is traumatized. You know, she's been through some shit. This weekend, I actually ended up rereading that old uh, Storm and Ileana miniseries. And um, one thing that was just, like, really hard to, like, think about, like, from her perspective, like, when she first goes into limbo, being seven years old, is some of the people that she um, cares about, she just sees their dead bodies just hanging there for years, like Colossus's body. For the whole, like, mainly the whole seven years that she's there, it should, the corpse is just hanging on the wall. And that's, like, how do you cope with that? <laughs> I want to say it actually gets made even worse when you read Inferno. Because if it's Inferno that I'm thinking of, when they jump back and they re-enter that time in Inferno. And they see um, Belasco and Sim chasing her. And it's like the first time that she's punished and like you get like you don't see her getting punished but you get like the reactions on the new mutants face that like oh my god this is what our friend went through when she was here um because it's little girl iliana it's not like big badass teenager iliana it's like a seven-year-old girl is about to get fucked up by some demons like yeah like she was hardened I don't know, I can't imagine a little child having to fend for their lives every single day against demons in limbo. That's wild to me. <laughs> well, and, and I think I think magic's a good example of like different characters like the, the, that have been in the history of X-Men for so long. You imprint on them at different points. It's kind of like your what is your canon or, or your experience with them? Uh, and for me, part of Ileana was was the legacy virus and her dying when she was a child and that i mean I, I i remember that issue so vividly and it really impacted me and i love colossus so seeing him go through all that pain was was such a cool thing and then i don't i, I wasn't around or currently reading when uh when she came back so then learning that in this in these history pages how she came back with how much of her soul she came back uh was was really cool yeah, and she's gotten some good feature, not just during Dawn of X, but um, you know what we like to call you know the dark, the dark years from Secret Wars forward. But e even back to Schism, she was Kieran Gillen had her in the uh, Extinction Team with uh, Colossus, and that's where we see like we see a colder, more manipulative Ilyana really starting to appear there. Um, we see her. The reason why Colossus claimed the gem of Sidorak, Ilyana baited him into it. Ilyana was going to, Ilyana, I don't know whether she was really going to or pretended to, they needed that power. And she was going to sacrifice more of herself and become under control of more demons again just to get that power. And she knew all along that Colossus always having to be the big brother and always trying to protect her was going to take it. And so she put that on him. Like, and she flat out tells him that's why they had the stretch where they didn't speak. She flat out tells him that, like, she knew he was going to do it. She put that on him and baited him into taking the gem and suffering from the demons during the time that he had uh, the juggernaut powers when he was unstoppable Colossus. That's cold. <laughs> that's cold, man. She became, 
Yeah, she she became cold, and you know, and she was central in the Bendis run. I loved the way Bendis did her. You know, we've talked on this show that I think one of the reasons why people are confused about like Ileana, and you know, is she is she gay? Is she straight? Is she pan? Is she ace? Is that like different writers really imprint on her different things? And Bendis Bendis wrote her as ace. You know, um, I think Hickman now writes her as uh, pan. Googs wrote her as uh, a lesbian, but during the Bendis run, like where he clearly had his take on her, I think one of my favorite moments was in the um, the fifteen dot I and H issue, the 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 one that's where the the girls have their day out going shopping, and all of the girls come to her like asking for help, and she's like, "Why are you asking me?" And they're like, "You're the nice one." She's like, "You think I'm the nice one? Like what? Like?" <laughs> because the only other alternative was emma frost they were the two adult females there she's like you think i'm the nice one get what the well that's another that's another thing is like that's a cool time because she really stepped up Mm -hmm. and she was a core you know there weren't many x-men around at that time Mm -hmm. and she was there yeah Yeah, she was a leader and a a trainer and a mentor for ava bell for um teen gene for the cuckoos um you know she got to work with kitty when kitty came over and changed sides and got some good kitty time um and then we saw her in extraordinary she was really featured in lemire's extraordinary after that where you know they moved the x mansion to limbo and she had the sapna story which was brutal for her god like Everything we've said about her past to then take on a young girl protege in limbo who is essentially destroyed by demons. Like, you can't think of anything worse for her to have to endure as an adult. You know, one thing I always thought was interesting with that extraordinary book is that um, it kind of at times felt like an Ileana solo book. Uh, more Ileana screen time is good. But, um, you know, I thought that was really interesting how she was such a huge focus where we're not normally used to seeing that outside of, like, a New Mutants type of thing. A lot of writers have done this with her recently, I think, and and Lemire definitely picked up on that. But, like, she's not a team player. Like, she doesn't want to hang out with the other people. So Ileana's B stories tend to be Ileana by herself. Like, they're not Ileana with other people or doing something like they tend to just be like Ileana's going off to train with Dr. Strange or Ileana has mentoring Sapna or Ileana, like they tend to kind of split her off and she's cause she is so private and guarded. And, and I think, and I think that's been kind of a problem I've had with ever since she was named as like the, the new leader of the new mutants in, in Don of X era a part of me has always been like, man, it kind of should have been Mirage, you know, like Mirage, when you go back to the old classic New Mutants, I feel like she was kind of being groomed to be the leader. And it feels like she she could be the leader of, of that crew. And I always felt like, you know, Ileana is more, she's a brawler, she's a badass, she's, uh, you know, she's the bus because she can teleport everybody. So she serves that function. Um but I, I haven't I haven't really seen her as a leader. Reading the this backstory kind of makes a good case for it. Like, yeah, no, she's got she's she's done her time. Oh, have you read uh, Rosenberg's Dead Soul? I have not. Okay, in Rosenberg's Dead Soul, she was a leader of a New Mutants team, um, being employed by Shan. But 
Hickman does a really Hickman very explicitly in one of his three or four New Mutants issues, um, and I think it's early on. It's like issue one or two. That um, does say that Danny is the leader of the New Mutants. Like when the New Mutants are out doing New Mutants things, Danny's in charge. Oh. But when it becomes a Krakoa issue, when it becomes anything that threatens Krakoa or the lives of mutants, then Ilyana, whether she's with the New Mutants, with X, whoever Ilyana's with, she's a captain. And she, when it becomes like a Krakoa um, jurisdiction, she takes charge. The second character, known from his first appearance in Incredible Hulk 181, you know, really giant size X Men. Logan Howlett, Wolverine, James Logan Howlett, Wolverine, Arturo. Tell me what you thought about this one. I I think uh, I think this is why we have data pages like this. This is why we have the handbook because Wolverine is a character that has, I think, been so overused and so overexposed, and always on. He's always got his own side mission, solo series, and. Uh, that it's kind of a disservice to him because he's been buried under so much history and retcons upon retcons. And it's... it's No X-Man character has had more pages written about them. Yeah, than yeah. And it's I think it's impossible. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bug and a feature about the character, right? It's impossible to read all the Wolverine stories. It's just, it's not, not practical. And, and because it's impossible to read all the Wolverine, even when a writer takes on Wolverine, they're writing it with their own blind spots and their own, you know, frames of reference. So I was, I was really fascinated by some of the stuff that they focused in on, uh, and, and the, and some of the stuff that they omitted from, from Wolverine's pages. Um, for example, they didn't even mention, uh, Magneto ripping the adamantium out of them. Which I guess in the grand scheme of things was just, you know, another day. But I mean, that, you know, that impacted the character for, for a while. Uh, so I was surprised by that. Um, and then surprised to see them include stuff like Revolto the Clown, which I, I had missed out. I had never read that. Um, and Wolver, Wolverhulk, Hulk, Hulkverine. Yeah, there, there's just a lot in here, man. There's, there's too many Wolverine stories. I think that um, it was very interesting what they chose because if we were going to do like a greatest hits album, you know, like if you were tasked with doing uh, a Wolverine omnibus and you're going to choose, you know, 400 pages of stories to fill this up, I don't think most of us would have chosen the ones that are highlighted here. Like we would not have spent, uh, you know, half a page to a page talking about Romulus. Uh, we would not have written so much about Hulk Vereens. Um, like, there's a lot of stuff on here that is not what you would call the big, um, as Revolto the Clown. God, I really hope that's not important coming up. Um, there's a lot of this that we wouldn't cover, that we wouldn't use. I also think by them kind of condensing this, it's really good because, I mean, like you said, there's so many stories where uh, people, you know, some people might not want to read that, even like long-term readers. And not only that, but for people who might have read a lot of this stuff in like the 90s and or back in like 10 years ago, they might not want to, you know, go back and reread that. 
So this is a really good like refresher for people for his for certain points in his history. I wouldn't fill it with like all this stuff about Romulus and Revolto the Clown and uh, Hulk Vereens. Like this isn't, you know, you would focus on Weapon X and you would focus on um, him taking over the Jean Grey school. Yeah, you would focus on uh, some of the Sabretooth stuff. Got to include Death of Wolverine. Um, Fatal Attractions, that era. Fatal Attractions, um, yep. I would include some mention of Omega Red, just because I miss it. Yeah, I love Omega Red. I did like that they uh, included from Cornell's run, the part where he lost his healing power and the stuff with Host. Um, I did a, a deep dive recap of all six of those issues on my website uh, earlier this year. And one of the things that I really liked about when Cornell um, took away his healing power was Wolverine got his ass kicked a lot. Um, Wolverine started getting his ass kicked by everyone. And he goes to kind of point out, like Cornell points out that like without his healing power, Wolverine has gained a lot of bad habits. Like he's learned to absorb shots, take pain, take damage as his fighting style because he knows he can heal it. His advantage is that he can throw his body at you, take whatever damage you have, and that'll get him in close enough to use his claws because his claws, you know, he can't attack you from the distance. He's got to get inside. And when he lost his healing power, that caused him to get his ass kicked by everyone. He was getting beat up by everyone. Batrock's <laughs> the most embarrassing. Like, he went mano a mano with Batrock and lost. But yeah, so without his powers, without his healing powers, and, you know, we saw that. And I'm wondering how that's going to impact Solemn. Like, when I was reminded of that story and I saw uh, Killable brought up in this recap, are we going to see Solemn take advantage of the fact that um, death counts here and maybe Wolverine can't use that to his advantage the way he normally would? It's been interesting, the stuff that Hickman likes to bring back, like... He has definitely leaned into or mentioned some stories that throughout Hoxpox and Dawn of X that like he knows we don't necessarily like. Um, and I, I, I want to kind of touch on that some more. Some of the stories he didn't bring back or is not looking at when we get to Apocalypse. Well, rereading the pages and stuff, I always thought how, you know, the whole, like, him being encased in adamantium was just a really, um, odd decision <laughs> from when he was, like, dead for those few years. Yeah, and they did so many things with that. I think the only story I really liked that they worked with that was um, Mystery in Madripoor. And we got some backstory of them, you know, moving it around and trying to hide him and Kitty taking the butt. Like, but yeah, it was, it was weird. It was weird what they did with that, for sure. There were some creepy bits, too, with like, you know, people go into his body like it was a temple or... Yeah. <laughs> All right. So from that, let's move into uh, Gorgon who I think for all of us here is the ex-captain and the character that we're kind of the least familiar with. He was introduced in Wolverine Volume 3, Number 20, uh, which I believe is a uh, Mark Millar volume. And we've seen him as a captain recently. So we've seen him uh, most particularly in, I want to say it's X-Men 4, where they have the big business meeting. Um, and he was security for uh, Xavier, Magneto, and Apocalypse. And I would say one of the things, Gorgon's was one of the sections in this handbook 
along with Moira that I found most interesting looking ahead to the future. So looking ahead to what could happen in X of Swords and beyond. Um, when they mention Gorgon, he's tied inexorably to two of our ten swords, Godkiller and Grasscutter, both of which were mentioned in X of Swords creation mm-hmm. as being ten of the swords that are to be brought into battle. And it mentions here that Godkiller was destroyed. Godkiller was destroyed, and so he took Grasscutter from his enemy and now has Grasscutter. But if both of them are being used, what do we see here? Are we going to see Gorgon with one and then yielding the other? Like, are we going to get a wild card? Is this going to be like our 10th person that we're not sure who's coming to fight along with them? Like, the last uh, character? Are we going to see a wild card where Gorgon gets to choose someone and give them a sword? Um, Because he has two. That would be cool, actually, to see. Like a wild card like, character, I, I, or or is or is Gorgon or is Gorgon going to stand in a circle with one foot in yeah. in one place and the other foot is in another? Gorgon fighting two of them, like it's it's interesting that two of the swords are essentially his from what we're seeing. I, I had mentioned before that when I first read Godkiller, I got all excited because I was confused and I thought they were talking about Gamora's sword. Not that Gamora was going to be one of the ten to fight in um, Otherworld, but that. You know, someone was going to have to go visit the Guardians of the Galaxy and, and try to pry her sword away from her. And then I remembered that her sword is God Slayer, not God Killer. You know, completely different. <laughs> so, uh, no, no, no Gamora sword here. <laughs> well, don't rule it out because, like you said, God Killer has been destroyed. So that's that's a big mystery that uh, that we got to see how they resolve. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, they resolved the Muramasa, uh, Muramasa one because it doesn't have to be, you know, that's a name for any sword by him. And so, you know, we saw them create new ones, but I don't know how they're going to resolve the God Killer. I'm interested to see that come up. And my guess is that it's probably going to be in the X-Men issue, that that's going to be a Hickman. So we have two more chapters before Stasis number one, Excalibur 13, and we know who's going to be, we know who's getting swords in that one, and then X-Men 13. I wonder if we're going to see some more of Gorgon's powers actually in use because I was I was surprised to learn how overpowered he is. He's a telepath with a healing factor that can turn people to stone, uh, and he's dabbled in the supernatural and what else? And he's uh, immune to fear and empathic attack. I mean, he's. He's not just a, a, you know, he's not like a silver samurai, which is kind of where I, what I thought he was before. I thought he was just a badass fighter with a, with a healing factor. Yeah, no. I, I had no idea he was a telepath. I definitely had him just kind of pegged as another um, of Wolverine's bad guys who, you know, was badass with a sword for him to fight. That, you know, a new writer on the book says, no, I'm going to make my own character so I can be the creator on. He'll do the same shit as the last (laughs) bad guy character that you had. But yeah, he definitely has some more. And it's interesting, you know, we saw all the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff come up. Some of that, to me, feels like it ties into, um, some of those characters tie into uh, Hickman's Secret Warrior stuff. And some of it, uh, I know, comes from Guggenheim's uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. series. Which I did not read, but that came after Mark Wade's really good Shield series when uh, Marvel was introducing the characters from the TV show into the six one six. So uh, there's some ties there because Shield took a lot from Hickman's Secret Warriors, um, and so the, 
you know, there's there's some character ties there in his background and what's going on that definitely uh, sparks or, or brings you back around to, to the Hick God. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't prepared to see Grant Ward mentioned in the pages of Gorgon. So I mean, it, and I watched a bunch of Shield. I haven't seen all of it, so it made me wonder. I mean, is Gorgon was Gorgon on the show at any point? Because he seems like he's had some some time some FaceTime with Coulson and uh, and Ward. I watched the first four seasons, which I believe is the full Grant Ward experience, and I do not remember Gorgon um, at any point. Yeah, I don't remember him either. I could be mistaken. You know, they could have made a version of Gorgon that I just didn't recognize. Like, That's I didn't true. make the connection. But um, I do not remember specifically them dealing with Gorgon. One thing I wanted to point out was um, the whole um, turning people to stone thing, which I thought was interesting of a power that he has. Because I believe it mentioned that there's um, like maybe either, I don't know, it said either like godlike or immortal-like people were like immune to that ability. Yeah. So I do wonder, like, in the, begin- in the beginning of his fight, if he's going to try that and it's just not going to work on the enemy. Or now, who knows? Maybe it will. Out of the ten sword bearers of Araco, isn't, um, isn't one of them made of stone? You know what? Mm. That would be interesting if um, that's who he goes up against. <laughs> that could be, yeah. I, we don't really know because we don't know as much and we haven't seen in previews who he's fighting. At least that I could tell when I looked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, going into our last character. So we knew for the first ones, we know Ileana's fighting Pog. We know Wolverine's fighting Solemn. We don't know who Gorgon's fighting. They have not announced who Apocalypse is fighting. Right? Apocalypse is fighting his ex-wife. Yeah. You don't, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, you don't that, do that's... and then not make Apocalypse fight his ex-wife. <laughs> And do you, do you think that uh, that Genesis and Annihilation are the same character? That's definitely one possibility. I, I have thought of that. It's hard because we know that Summoner has been twisting the truth so much. And so there's bits of truth in what he was saying mixed in with the lies. I don't know if... Are Genesis and Annihilation supposed to be two of the ten sword bearers, though? I don't think there are two of that. I think I think Annihilation is one of them. I'm not looking at the full list now. If Genesis is not listed as a sword bearer, then absolutely Genesis is Annihilation. Um, if they're separate, then I don't know. But either way, Apocalypse is fighting his ex-wife. Yeah, I keep going back to that. I think it was a Four of Cups page, uh, the tarot card, where they're, you know, half and half. And I'm, I'm convinced that they're the same. But yeah, Apocalypse is definitely fighting his ex-wife. Yes. No, they, they have them half and half on that page. You're right. And I had mentioned that the, the poem for it, the what they had said about it, just sounds so much like divorce. I, so my one of the things I loved about, about the Apocalypse recap was that they just that they brought up all the stuff about the celestial tech and, and just that part of his history. Um, it's been like an itch. I can't scratch that since we changed gears and now apocalypse is all about magic that we've never really talked about, about that other side to him. So I, I'm glad that that is still relevant. I was, you know, we were talking earlier in the green room about some of the surprise of the some of the stories that they included in this handbook and some of the things that they that, that they omitted 
And uh, one thing I was looking for here uh, in Apocalypse pages were the story of the 12, right? When he, mm. you know, when he ultimately possessed the body of Scott Summers and he had gathered, you know, the 12, you know, mutants that... try to avoid the story of the 12, so that's interesting. Well, because the, it, it, not that it was a great story, but it feels like the story of the 12 is uh is echoed again kind of in in the grimoire pages when apocalypse is talking about mutants working together and creating like a circuit and you know and these these covens and these circles it feels like well yeah he's he did that shit years ago in in the 12 you know different different scale but same kind of concept so i was surprised that wasn't mentioned and then i was shocked that anybody would choose choose to recover the ground uh, that that we tread in the X Men Black series when Apocalypse devolves into like a primate. I feel like we could have done without that, but here it is in in these pages. Yeah, some people <laughs> really like that, and I don't understand um, those people. I was not, and I know that that's Zach and Lonnie, and Zach and Lonnie have done some great stuff, but um, I I went back and, and read and reread that. I was going to do a recap and patch all five together, but honestly, like, I just didn't want to. <laughs> like, um, I recapped all of the other five X-Men Age of, uh, Age of Black, X-Men Black <laughs> um, one-shots, because I love that series, but the Apocalypse one was just too weird and off for me i did not get it um an interesting choice that they chose that and left out what i thought was a really kind of important glimpse into young apocalypse from um hopeless's apocalypse wars right so again during those dark times you know when uh all new x-men volume 2 had a whole time travel story where beast and kid apocalypse went back in time and became friends with the child version of in Sabah Nur before he uh, had gone bad, I guess. Like, like before, you know, back when he was just, you know, like a young, bright-eyed Egyptian boy who, you know, loved everyone and wanted to save people. And that was completely left out of here that, you know, we don't see that version I love the mention of Genesis. So I, I haven't read all of the the X Men. Uh, what, what was that that story? Age of X Men. The Age of X Men. I, I have not read all of it. I've read a couple of issues here and there, so I didn't really get into it. Uh, it's very good. It's very what? It's very good. It's very good. Well, I'll see, I, should, I, I gotta check it out. Uh, but I love this mention of Apocalypse growing to love Genesis. I love that. That made me so happy. And now we're seeing him experience love That's again with sweet. Richter. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot. Again, for like the people who were saying that like Age of X-Men doesn't count and the stuff that they were doing leading up to this, like, no, 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 no. Like they did a lot of kind of shaping, preparing, like before we could get Moira 9, you know, like as the wife of Apocalypse. We got Apocalypse leading a love cult in Age of X-Men. Um, yes. You know, his ultimate act of rebellion against X-Men in that universe was, you know, it was a universe where, you know, relationships and intimacy and sex and secrets were prohibited. So what did he do? 
he created a big free love mutant orgy fuck fest like because Nate Gray would hate that the interesting thing in the what they chose too was definitely that like 80% of this is hox pox docs like that they focused so much on and they did bring in a little of the celestial stuff from um what was uh, oh my god it's not legacy war what was judgment war um the celestial stuff we learned in judgment war right we got a little bit of ensaba we got some of the x-men black story but so much of this is post like dawn of x like what we've seen the recap of his actions and motivations throughout excalibur and in um the main x-men book here and you know what reading that uh, kind of made me realize something. And, and Josh, I think you and I have been kind of on the same page about Excalibur has been good, but there's something about it that doesn't hasn't clicked. When you recap the story like they do here, when when you when you spell out like what has been done, it's it sounds great, but I think it's a matter of pacing because when you're going through it issue by issue, over you know over a spread of weeks and months and, and with COVID slowing everything down, the pacing I think suffers even more because of that. Um, but yeah, I, yeah. I like how they summed it all up here and you could kind of really see where, you know, wh- the, the threads that, that Tinny has been, has been weaving, you know, for the last year and, and what it's all leading up to and how apocalypse is such a big part of the council and, and of this, this new era but he still has his own agenda, which I think is it's cool that we were seeing that come to light and seeing, you know, in a couple issues back, uh, Magneto saying, you know, saying Apocalypse's hubris is going to bring us all down. Uh, it's it this these data pages are a reminder that Apocalypse is on another level, you know, compared to pretty much anybody else in the Marvel Universe. And this is a good job of just kind of recapped for them, like you were saying, because some of teeny strands were too subtle i enjoyed excalibur rereading it recently going back after issue 12 and rereading teeny's run and seeing oh my god all of this has been here now i see exactly things that either felt throwaway or didn't seem important or and then you know a couple months of covid gap i didn't remember because it didn't seem important and i felt kind of lost teeny's run on second read when you know where it's going and what it's building everything is there and it was felt much more cohesive and i appreciate it and enjoyed it so much more the second time around than i did the first time Uh, yeah that totally makes sense one thing that i've really loved about apocalypse more so the past few years definitely during teeny and hickman is that there's been like a huge like emotional shift in his character for most years, I never really thought of him being a character that people could relate to on like an emotional level. He's always has always been like, you know, kind of like a big bad villain kind of thing, you know. But now in recent like issues and things like that, we're seeing him actually like experience and talk about regret and things that he um is like ashamed of and then things i think when he cried i think that that was like the first time i've ever seen him actually cry over something oh no that was significant uh, i think we talked about last week or two weeks ago when that happened too with creation that um apocalypse and maybe even as much as the crying apocalypse falling to his knees yeah was a very clear visual cue meant to humanize and show yeah. us a very different side of him 
because Apocalypse is someone who would kill people in the past for falling to their knees yeah. and deferring their strength to someone else. So, yeah, like, that was just definitely, like, a huge shift in his character that Teeny and Hickman are taking him on because, um, yeah, like you said, like, him falling to his knees. We're seeing, like, for once a focus of, like, him trying to bring his kids back instead of actually just focusing on himself. Yeah, and he's he's at an interesting place in his life because, yeah. and, and it's it's been made very explicit that, mm-hmm. like, this is one of those, like, fighting the war and then winning, like, living life after it. Um, it kind of makes me think of Hamilton, too, like, the two the two halves of that show, you know, of, you know, what was it like when, you know, anything goes, you're fighting to win, you have to be, and then when you're trying to maintain or build or, you know, when you're in a peacetime, when you don't have someone to fight anymore. And I think, you know, we've seen this is kind of like Apocalypse's midlife crisis a little here as he's going back and trying to, you know, look at the things he lost or rebuild or, you know, mutants are finally in the place where he wanted them to be. And you go back to follow the mutants. So, like, Apocalypse hasn't changed his stance at all. Like, what Xavier came to Apocalypse with in House of X is exactly what Apocalypse reached his hand out to in X-Factor in X-Factors 24 and 25 during Fall of the Mutants and what he offered them and wanted them to have with him. Mm -hmm. Like, the rest of the world came around to Apocalypse. He didn't have to go, you know, he didn't have to betray any of his beliefs or anything to, to come here and be part of Krakoa. This is what he's wanted from his earliest stories in Louis Simonson's X Factor. Um, And he's got it now. And so what he's been fighting for, as long as we've known him, he has. Now what? Like, he's in a... We get to see a different side of him. Yeah, it's, it's amazing because when all of the villains showed up on Krakoa, and and some villains took, you know, leadership roles on the council. I think everybody kind of looked at it like, okay, well, you know, Sinister is not exactly a good guy. You know, we, we know that's, that's he's might be fighting with the X-Men right now, but he's not a good guy. And with Apocalypse... He's my favorite oh, guy. Oh, he's the best. He's, he's Sinister's <laughs> the best. And he's he's not good, but he's, he's the best. He's the best. No, Sinister's <laughs> the best. And, you know, I can't wait for us to talk about Hellions. And, yeah, Sinister's incredible. But you know he's he's not a good guy. With Apocalypse, you know, I think you could argue that he's such... He has been such a villain before that it was kind of like, okay, how's Apocalypse going to be a good guy now? And he's actually doing it, you know. They, they've 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 humanized Apocalypse in a way, and that I don't think I ex- I ever could have expected. You know, I, I've always had Apocalypse kind of on this other level where he's just a big bad, and now you see him kind of being a person, you know, and having feelings and 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 striving for things and failing. Yeah. Powers of Ten really did a lot to lead the way for us by showing us uh, Moira Nine's life. By showing us him like as the leader of them and what it could be like if the X-Men had been, under, instead of fighting him, been shepherded by him um, in that timeline. Uh, I think really helped us to kind of see too that there was not as much distinction there, right? That he was 
maybe more a rival than an enemy in the way you know we had mentioned before that emma frost and the hellions throughout new mutants they weren't the enemies of the new mutants like they were not people go back and think of them as like the bad guys or the bad team they were not they were just rivals the kids were all actually friends except for empath because he was a dick but like the rest of them they were all friends um they were the rival school they each thought they were better but um you know they had the same mission the same goal in mind and i kind of think that apocalypse the tiny retcon the tiny rewriting or revision of him is that he hasn't been an enemy he he hasn't been like the antithesis of the x-men all along he's just been more of a rival a different like magneto a different way that mutants could succeed and you know now we know from moira that it's going to take all of them none of these ways work they're all going to have to be in this together and I love that. I love that. I love that of the Krakoa era. Yep. Like I've said before, it's a, it's a new age of apocalypse. We're just not calling it that. 